want to begin by saying that I, I love life. I love living in the 21st century. I don't think I'd want to live any, at any other time. There are so many awesome and amazing and wonderful things that we enjoy living in the here and now. Just looking forward to life in the day. It's awesome. But I say that because I am about to say something that's not so positive and awesome. Because we would be fools as Christians, as Christians who are observing the world around us, to not conclude that living in the 21st century is pretty jacked up. Spiritual darkness, sin, what's good is called bad and what's bad is called good. It's astounding and staggering to look at the world around us and to see what's happening. God speaks of truth and error, truth, right and wrong, and we, we can't even use those words anymore. We, we say my truth because there's no such thing as absolute truth. That's bizarre. It's absolutely bizarre. Tolerance was once virtuous because you disagreed with someone about something and yet you could still get along with them and be reasonable with them because you disagreed, you tolerated one another. But we can't tolerate anymore because we can't disagree anymore, so we have to embrace all views. Tolerance isn't enough. Some of you are finding this in the workplace. You used to hear about tolerance and now it's acceptance or you somehow are committing a hate crime. It's bizarre to consider that. Murder is a sin according to the Bible, and yet I heard this week from a politician that an abortion is safer than having your wisdom teeth removed. So go get an abortion. Jesus declares that there are men and women, and yet we are told that there are more genders than there are weeks in the year. Oh, wait a minute, that was 2014. There are way more now. The New Testament says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Our culture can hardly make sense of what those words even mean, let alone find them to be resonating or true. And you know the list could go on and on and on and on. Things are bad when what is good is labeled bad and what is bad is labeled as good. We see it again and again even in the Bible. It's perversity. It's upside down. It's backward. So while I love living in the 21st century, I would be dishonest or a fool if I didn't think It's dark and perverse and messed up. I bring this up this morning not to be a downer, um, not to rant against all of the woes in our culture, but because these things are sin and we're living in a broken world that's infested with sin and we as Christians are called to live a certain way in a broken, sinful world. 
And so I want to borrow from Jesus, if you will, quote Jesus, hear from Jesus as he takes his disciples and he helps them think through how they're to be, how they're to think, how they're to function in a world that is broken and messed up and perverse in different ways then from now, but still then and now, so that it might help us. Okay, How do we maneuver how, how do we how do we think this through? What's our place in this world where wrong is called right and right is called wrong? I need that kind of help. And so this morning in Matthew chapter 5, so it's the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Matthew, Jesus takes his disciples and he helps them. He helps them maneuver. He equips them specifically by reminding them who they are. Okay, they, they belong to him. They're, they're citizens of the kingdom. Theirs is the kingdom we learned last time in chapter 5, verse 1. So they belong to the kingdom. They belong to the king. And then he gives them two identity markers, we might call them, uh, two, two ways of thinking of themselves that will help them maneuver with these two you are statements. He says, you are the salt of the earth. And you are the light of the world in Matthew chapter 5. And so what I'd like you to do now is join me in reading through chapter 5 verses 13 to 16. But we're going to pay special attention this morning to these two you are statements. Because if you understand who you are, it'll help you understand how you relate to a decaying, decrepit, sometimes morally perverse world. He's helping them to know how to do this. And we need that kind of help too. So let's go ahead and read 13 to 16 in chapter 5. You, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except it be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And now we'll specifically take a deeper dive, as I like to call it, and we'll look at these two you are statements. If you're taking notes, you can say these are two I am statements, at least for you, because if you're a follower of Jesus, you are, or you could write, I am the salt of the earth. Got to remember that. It's going to help me maneuver complicated times. I am the light of the world. Got to remember that. It's going to help you maneuver dark, sinful times in a dark, sinful world. Now, as far as the setting goes, as we saw earlier, chapter 5, verse 1, Jesus is with his disciples there in the Galilee region, next to the Sea of Galilee, uh, northwest region by Capernaum, and he's there instructing the disciples, chapter 5, verse 1, I believe it is. The crowds are around him, but in particular, he's addressing them. And he's already said, yours is the kingdom of heaven. So they're kingdom citizens. They belong to the kingdom ultimately because of God's grace. But this isn't the consummated kingdom. In fact, there's going to be persecution, he told them. There's going to be hostility, he told them. So how do we do it? How do, how do we maneuver? Let's maneuver by thinking in terms of I am and I am. I am, if I'm a believer, salt of the earth. I am, if I'm a believer, light of the world. Pretty big statements. 
In fact, really big statements, but important ones as he's equipping them with these metaphors, describing them of what they're going to face and how they should think of themselves. Self-understanding is actually important. Ready to go? Ready to go a little further, I hope? So salt of the earth is the first one. Followers of Christ are salt, uh, are salt of the earth or the salt of the earth. And in verse 13 where he says, you are the salt of the earth, he's obviously using metaphor, Right? Salt is, I mean, salt has had a weird history in some of our lives. Um, in my short little life, I mean, I think growing up, our food was super salty and didn't have a lot of flavor, kind of weird. Um, and then we find out sodium is like the worst thing on planet Earth for you, and so now we have no sodium, everything, and I kind of got used to that. Um, and then now, depending on which way the wind's blowing, maybe sodium is good for you. And It's very confusing sometimes. But I, I guess I will say... I, I love salt. I, I, it's one of, my, one of my little life's pleasures is, is salt these days. Now, if I get sushi, I get the low sodium. I get the green lid, okay, not the red lid because it's too much. Um, but we, we have this, where is it from? Is it Icelandic sea salt? I, it's Icelandic sea salt. We have it on our table. It's flaky. And I just love to take it on some great food prepared. I was going to say a filet, but I don't want to offend you if you're a vegetarian. So some kind of wonderful food. Hey, I, just to top it off and flake in my hand and put on just how oh, it brings out the flavor. So generally, I kind of like the low sodium and add my own to taste. Oh, is it lunchtime yet? Salt is a preservative, right? Now, I, I digress, but back to what we're talking about. Salt is a pre- preservative keeps things from decaying. Um, it does bring joy, right? It, 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 it's a little bit uh, a wonderful taste. It does bring joy, so it's used in that sense. Uh, back in the first century, it would have been valuable. It's significant, different kinds of salt. People would have liked it. Their life would have depended upon it in one way as the enemy of decay, preservation, of value. One commentator said it's a kind of moral antiseptic. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones medical doctor turned preacher, uh, famously so, a great preacher from about 100 years ago. He said this in his commentary on this text. um, This clearly implies rottenness. I just want to say rottenness. It implies rottenness. It implies a tendency to pollution and to becoming foul and offensive. It is like meat, which has a tendency to putrefy. No, that's the word I wanted to say. Had a tendency to putrefy and to become polluted. And Lloyd-Jones does a good job of going on to say, you know, we have to realize this is said in, in, in a negative kind of sense. In the midst of moral decay, in the midst of putrefaction, just sounds terrible, doesn't it, in a good sort of way? In the midst of this broken world where you're going to do what's right, standing for righteousness, and you're going to be persecuted for it, you know what, you've got to see yourself as something positive amidst the negative. Okay, you're, you're, you're pre- preserving. There's a pre- preservative kind of factor. There's a health kind of factor that you're bringing into this dark world is surely Jesus' point. It's the right kind of self-identity. Grammar experts tell us that the you is emphatic. You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. You in particular and even also you and you alone. 
unbelievers are not going to have the same kind of effect in this broken, dark world that you're going to have. So you need to see yourself as salt of the earth. I find it interesting that this is not a you need to be kind of thing. It's a declaration. Because sometimes I, I slip up and I say, you know, we need to be, make sure we're working on being the salt of the earth. And we need to make sure we're working on being the light of the world. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. This is who you are. By nature of the fact that the kingdom belongs to you, this is who you are. You, by nature, as a, as a believer, are salty. It's built in. So I might need to work on remembering that's who we are and who I am. But he's saying, you are this. You're not becoming this. You shouldn't seek to be this. This is who you are. And there's a good effect in the world because of this is who you are. So it's not a generic kind of, when we talk about someone, we might even say, you know what? She's a salt of the earth type gal. Or he's a real salt of the earth type guy. Um, Simple, purist. They enjoy simple things. Sometimes it's uh, crude things, basics. It's not what Jesus has in mind. It's the you as believers are the salt of the earth. there's, There's a preservative factor. There's a health kind of factor and an antiseptic kind of factor. It parallels, where he says salt of the earth, it parallels world later in verse 14. So he's talking about in this world, in humanity, he's not talking about the ground. And remember again, I'll remind you in 5.1, yours is the kingdom of heaven. So what we're seeing here, friends, is those who belong to the kingdom and belong to the king, we possess it, it possesses us, have responsibilities. Okay? He's giving them responsibilities. You're going to be called to do certain things, and let's start by declaring who you are. You are the salt of the earth. You are going to have an influence in the world. It's not the kingdom, but you do have a good kind of influence. Then comes a bit of a warning if you keep looking with me in verse 13. But if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, we can get technical and say sodium chloride never loses the saltiness. But if you have impure salt, and the, the genuine salt, the sodium chloride, I'm, I'm not an expert in these things. It gets leached out, gets rinsed out, whatever it is. And now whatever it is you had that you were using to salt your food isn't salty anymore. What do you do? You throw it away. It's not good for anything. The simple point is being made. If you're a Christian, act like a Christian. If you say you're a Christian and don't act like a Christian, according to the analogy, what good is that? There isn't anything good about that. That, 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 That's just dumb. That's just a waste. It doesn't even make sense. It doesn't make sense to use salt that's not salty. That's the stuff you throw away. Well, it doesn't make sense to say you're a Christian and not act like a Christian because that would be like a throwaway Christian. It's like useless. Yours is the kingdom And therefore you belong to Christ and therefore you are the salt of the earth. There's a significance. There's an importance. Maybe it's to to, to stay the tide. It's to slow the decay down. 
It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a type of preservation. I think that's what he's getting at. Salt is meant to be salty. Christians are meant to be Christianly, Christ-like. That sounds better. Now, here's a question I have for you. What does this look like? I don't think we have to wonder very long because I actually think it's answered in our text. I mean, I think I could give you some good ideas. We could look at other Bible texts. I could say, here's what it means to be Christ-like. Here's what it means to be salty. Step one. Step two. But actually, I think it answers itself in the Sermon on the Mount based upon the things he's already said. He's already talked about how we should live as those who belong to the king and those who belong to his coming kingdom. So I think we should just go back to the verses before and say, I think this will help us to know how to be salty. This will help us to know how to act like Christians. So if we go back, look there with me if you would, back to verses 3 to 12, I think it really, really helps us out to know how to do this. We don't have to speculate. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So there's humility there. We haven't earned it on our own. We don't bring anything to God. That's our demeanor. We're not better than other people. We're the poor in spirit people. We know that it's a gift from God. Okay, we're not, we're not prideful. Let's keep working our way through it to know how to be salty. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So they mourn. They mourn, mourn over sin. They mourn over uh, sin's effects. So again, I can look and, and, and see decay and bad things and awful things, and I can say they're bad and awful because if they're bad and awful, I can say that. But I, I, I even want it, based upon this text, to hurt, to feel pain. This isn't good. This isn't good for people who are promoting it. This isn't good for people who are receiving it. This isn't good because it doesn't bring God glory. This isn't good for others. This isn't good for my family. This is, this is bad. This is, this is unhelpful. This is going to lead to more pain. So it's one thing to stand in judgment and say, this is wrong and this is right. It's another thing to say, I, I, I mourn over the effects of sin and sin in my own life and in the world around me. I think that's salty. That's Christianly. Then let's keep going. Blessed are the meek. We learned last time, that's the gentle. Jesus is referred to as gentle. Same word, meek. It doesn't mean he doesn't have power. He has all the power in the world, but it's under control. It's gentle for the benefit of other people. That's a way to be salty. Blessed, verse 6 says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's a way to be salty, right? Righteousness is what's right. It's what God says is true and, and what God says is good. And, and so what are we going to do? We, lo- we long, we hunger and thirst for what's good and true and right. And by doing that, we end up looking Christianly. We end up salty. So we long for what's good and right. If we keep going to know how to be salty, if you will, it says... Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Again, as we saw last week, not, not, not giving people what they deserve because we haven't been given what we, we deserve. And so here, again, in a broken world, we can say, did you see what that person wrote? Did you hear what they said? How awful, how wrong, how perverse, how sinful. But you know, I think as a Christian, it's more complicated than that. 
there could be a mourning and a heaviness and this is dishonoring to God and this isn't right. And yet at the same time, to be able to show mercy. I'm so grateful that God didn't give me what I deserve. So I can say what's being said is wrong and vile and bad and wicked and has ill effects, but I can also know that there's a place to extend mercy because my sins aren't held against me. I find that super helpful. Blessed are the pure in heart, not the double-minded or, or double-hearted kind of person. They, 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 they're genuine. They're, we would say, authentic for God, His glory, for the good of others who are made in the image of God. Then it says in verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. You want peace. You want reconciliation to God ultimately, but even in a lesser sense. Because God is a peacemaking God, and so we will be called the sons of God. We're imitating God when we're peacemakers. So all of these, are, all of these end up being things you can do. It's implied action. So yes, salvation is, is only by God's grace. Remember, we, we, His name is Jesus, right? 121. I'll, I'll keep going back there because he will, he will save His people from their sins. So it comes to us freely. He's the Savior. It's not if you could just be salty enough, God will eventually accept the salty ones. It's not the idea. But since the kingdom is ours, since we are saved by Christ, we want to act like Christ in a Christ-like kind of way. And so amidst the darkness, we want to remember we are the salt of the earth. We want to be useful. If we're not salty, we're not useful. We want to bring God glory. We want to have good influence in the world around us by doing what God says is good. And so the illustrations now or the applications could be limitless. So let's think. Some of you are students. If you're thinking in terms of what we've read, it's going to affect the way you treat other people, the way you talk, the things you say, the things you don't say, the things you like, the things you don't like, the things you approve of, the things you don't approve of. On the job, same thing applies. In the family, same thing applies. There, the applications don't run out. So if I skipped you, um, this, this, this just includes all of life. I kind of like it that Jesus doesn't give him specific examples. You are the salt of the earth. Act like somebody who belongs to the forever ruling, reigning king who saved you by his grace and according to his mercy. And there is a preservative kind of effect. It's very helpful. I mean, this, this doesn't get any more basic. I'm just saying, if you're a Christian, would you please seek to act like a Christian? <laughs> yeah, but you should see how bad the world is. Yeah, Jesus knows. It's bad. And even the fact that it needs salt speaks to, as the good doctor would have said, Lloyd-Jones, to its putrid nature it's a broken world therefore it needs the salt there's a temporary place for us doing this kind of thing 
Let's not be Christians in name only. Just a little bit broader application. Um, I think this, this helps speak to even the, the mindset that Christians, if they're faithful, just go and hide. I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill here, but it's a place to at least mention that. Sometimes Christians have tried to, to live the Christian life that way, and, and so we're going to go, we're going to join a monastery, and, or we're going to have a monastic kind of life, and we're going to go to a holy huddle, and we're just going to go and hide, and we're going to go and retreat, and then we know God is pleased with us. But at least for his disciples here, and Christians are also called disciples in the book of Acts, used interchangeably. You're the salt of the earth. It's anticipating, expecting, assuming that there's there's touch and elbow rubbing in the broken world around you. For sure, it implies there's a distinction, right? You and you alone are the salt of the earth. You're not exactly like all the other people. There's distinction, but there's also involvement. How that works all the time, I don't know. But he wasn't calling them to go and hide and retreat all of the time, though they did sometimes. Maybe another point of application before we move on would be, I think it's important to notice that we are salt and that we preach Christ. So we are salt. We proclaim the gospel. We preach Christ. And I think there's actually a difference that's a pretty important one. Um, we don't preach salt. Well, I am today, but um, generally speaking with our lives, we, we, we are salt and so we want to live saltily. But we preach the gospel. Let me put it another way. We don't live the gospel. Because we're not the gospel. Jesus never says, you are the gospel. So therefore, live the gospel. No. Jesus Christ is the good one who did the good thing on our behalf. The only way to communicate that would be through proclamation. Because it's, not, it's something we receive, not something we create and do. And yet, God uses people's lives. We're going to see that later in our text. And he's calling us as those who are salt, because we belong to him, to live in a way that is not green-litted soy sauce, it's red-litted soy sauce. Full sodium. And it would complement our preaching. But they're not the same. Okay, ready to move on? Let's go to the second self-identifier. So, salt, you are the salt of the earth. The second one would be, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Here's the next, you are declaration. In verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. I guess we should start by saying he's not talking about America like politicians say with this verse. Um, politician after politician after politician. He's talking about individuals. But he does say, using the the analogy, you are the light of the world. A a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. If if he's using the most visible illustration right there to them, and scholars debate this uh, of what he has in mind, but commonly Jesus has 
he commonly uses things around them, right? For parables and it's farming and it's weeds and rocks and stones and wine presses and these kinds of things, oxen. So if they're there on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, and if he's using the well-lit city of that time that everyone would have known about, he's using the city called Susita. Susita, or also known as Hippos, the word for horse, one of the ten Decapolis cities, which would be uh, up to, on, the, on the east side, way up on a hill, and it would have been extremely well lit. More than likely, that's what he has in mind. I wouldn't die on this hill, but more than likely, that's what he has on his mind. Way up there on the hill, way up on the side, there is this Decapolis city, which is a significant city, not as big as some of the others, but at least we found archaeologically a 500-seat amphitheater. I mean, it was sizable. Things were happening there. Culture was happening, and they would have been lit up at night more than any other place would have been lit up at night. And so Jesus could have sat there teaching them and said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill is visible. It's noticeable. It's undeniable like the city we all know, the city of Susita. I've been doing a little research because I've never been to this city and now it's bothering me. Um, It's kind of like wet paint, right? No trespassing. I'm like, why haven't I been to Susita? I need to go to Susita. So I've got it figured out. So... I think it's going to be a 2.1 mile hike and we're going to bribe whoever we need to bribe to get up there. I've watched videos. It's relatively safe. No, it is. It's safe. <laughs> it's, a, it's actually a national park, so we can, we can get there. We just can't get the bus there. I digress. It's well known. It's bright. It's lit. It's undeniable. You are the light of the world if you're a Christian. By nature, you, there, there's light. It's, it's, your Christianity is visible. You, you, you can see that there is a difference. Dark world, again, like Lloyd-Jones would say, it, impl- it implies darkness, spiritual debauchery, spiritual badness. And, and what, what are you? You belong to Christ, who is the light of the world according to Him. And so you're, by extension, the light of the world. It's a pretty astounding, kind of staggering thing for him to be saying. You, you stand out. There is significance. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. So darkness is bad. But even earlier, if you go back to chapter 4, Jesus is talking about the light and the darkness. And, and darkness being uh, associated with salvation and redemption, guidance. Think about what you use light for. If you don't have light, you, you can't make sense of things. You can't read things. You don't have safe journey. It's dangerous. You've got to be able to see where you're going so you don't hurt yourself. It's for guidance. It's, it's for clarity. It's for understanding. And he's saying, you are the light of the world. You're going to bring the guidance and the clarity and the understanding and the illumination of who God is. That's who you are. But if you go back to chapter 4, verse 12, I think it's fascinating to remember according to the flow of things, Jesus has already been talking about this. You are the light of the world. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. That's where they are now, that region, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So, so what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Isaiah 9, 2. 
He's going to quote, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Here's really what I wanted you to see. The people dwelling in darkness, that's, that's bad, that's negative sin, helplessness, danger, have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Well, ultimately it's going to be Christ. John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. But here, because of association, because we belong to Christ, Jesus is saying to them, you're the light of the world. No doubt because of who we, who we represent, who we belong to. But this has been anticipated. This is prophetic anticipation. One day in this darkened world of danger, spiritually dangerous in particular, there's going to be a great light like never before. And it's going to focus on Christ. But here, he says to fishermen, you're the light of the world. It's because they belong to him and he's great. He's the fulfillment. He's the one. And now they're going to preach him and they're going to live for him and he's changed them. They're the light of the world. And even think of the extension, world. So, so you're the one and only true lights. We could look at it that way. We could also look at it in the Jew and Gentile way. This is Gentile inclusion. You're not just for the Jews and you're preaching the gospel to all nations. We're going to learn at the end. You're the light of the world. You're the hope of the world. You're the one that they've been waiting for. Some think this is also fulfillment. What's going on here would be the fulfillment of Isaiah 60. And there's debate about that. Where there's this anticipation for light, not only for the Jews, but from Zion, they're going to find help and light even the non-Jews. Seems to be a connection. You're the light of the world. This is what's been prophesied. This is what we've been waiting for. You are the light of the world. I don't want to spend too much time here, but just maybe one more thing. If you, as a Christian, are the light of the world, I mean, that's a pretty tall order. And again, don't think too highly of yourself because Peter ought not have thought too highly of himself. It's because of association. But, but again, not trying to help your self-esteem, but self-identity is important. According to Jesus, you want to know how to maneuver in a dark world that seems messed up because it is messed up? You need to see yourself the right way. You are the light of the world. Well, that would seem pretty important. You have a pretty important job. You know what the world's hope is? The world's hope is to believe in Jesus, the one mediator between God and man. And that has to do with the way God uses men and women and boys and girls in other people's lives. You are, you, you, if I, I'm going to push it a little too far, you're the only hope the world has. Again, not trying to stroke your ego or, or get you on wrong thinking. But because of who you belong to and because you know the good news about Him, the King, you're the only hope the world has. You're the light of the world. Hmm. 
pretty important to know, especially earlier on, there's persecution, there's opposition. Maybe you start thinking, you know what, maybe, I, maybe everybody else is right and I'm wrong. And Jesus is bolstering their commitment to being united to him. And he's saying, you are the hope, you are the light of the world. And I need to be reminded of that. I think you probably do as well. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 4 as it would relate to this because we were there not very long ago. But the connection to light of the world is with Christ and understanding how he fulfills these things. And as those who are the light of the world, we, we know how these things work. So I can't help myself. I have to, to, to read it in verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Then he says in verse 6, Let light shine out of darkness. He's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In so many ways, we're the light of the world because we belong to the one who is the light of the world. And we understand this because God has supernaturally taken the blinders off and we see that the answer is Christ. It's Him. He's the one. He's the one who's been anticipated. He's the one who came and fulfilled. It's ultimately Him. And he's the hope of the world. Then it says in verse 15, let's move on and get things wrapped up. Nor do people light a lamp. So he's moved from the city now to a lamp. Same idea, really. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. That would be ridiculous. But on a stand. And it gives light. It keeps giving light. Present tense. And again, don't think of your multi-bedroom home, think of a one-bedroom home. And if you have one light well-placed, it's going to light the whole room. Provides light for everybody. To all in the house. Maybe intentionally Gentiles too. In the same way, let your light shine. Oh, we were called lights and now we're called to let our light shine because now it's like a lamp before others so that they may see your good works. I wrote in my margin, the fruit of union with Christ and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And if he's our Father, that assumes there's been a conversion. There's been something that supernaturally happened. It seems to me, to not be reading too much into it, that for sure this is talking about the way you live your life. But it seems like there's even more involved. Because now we have people giving glory to your Father. It seems as if they've now come over to the other side and they've joined you in giving glory to your Father. They've been converted. And so, again... We're going to let our light shine. We're going to do the Beatitudes to the best of our ability by God's grace. We're going to live differently. We're going to live salty kind of life and, and live for God's glory and for His honor. Do good works because He says do good works. And I would suggest to you, if you wonder what good works look like, you should start with the Beatitudes. And you do the good works and eventually, it seems, there must have been an opportunity to communicate the significance of the changed life, the salty kind of life, the different kind of life. Because now they're over to your side, joining you in glorifying God. So, God uses people. God uses people's lives. Okay? Clearly that's happening here. 
Isn't it interesting that Jesus is going to scold the Pharisees for doing good works in front of people? And here, he's saying you should do good works in front of people. Apparently, there's a different way to do good works in front of people. I don't have all the answers. I can tell you that the Pharisees thought somehow by doing the works, they could earn acceptance from God. And Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And we're doing good works because the kingdom is already ours by virtue of his grace. It belongs to us. So there's a huge difference. And so now I'm going to do my good works, not because, Lowell, look at me, I'm so awesome for my glory and my honor, and I might just earn my way to heaven. It's not that at all. To do good works because I'm a changed person because God has worked in my life and now the kingdom belongs to me. I'm the salt of the earth and the light of the world. I want to do good works. I want to do good works for the benefit of other people, even showing them mercy, that God might use that so that they would come to understand the gospel and hear the gospel so they can come over to my side and join me in glorifying God. I'm going to do the good works for the glory of God out of gratitude because of what he's already done in my life. But God for sure uses people. Jesus implicitly is saying, your life Live before other people, leading to their benefit and leading to my glory for your good works. And they're good. It's pretty amazing. It's really pretty amazing to think about. So lots of Sundays, we don't talk about what you should be doing. We talk about what Christ has done. I think that's really important. Today, we're talking about what you should be doing because of what Christ has done. You should be living like who you are. Crazy people are not in touch with reality. They live like someone they're not. Don't be a crazy person. You are the salt of the earth. Act like you're the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Act like the light of the world. And while everybody else might think you're crazy, you're actually sane because you're united to Christ by faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for the opportunity we have to hear from Jesus. Please help us to take these two declarations to heart in an appropriate way applied by the Holy Spirit's power that we would be seeking to live like Christians, that we would see wrong for what it is, that we'd be willing to call wrong, wrong, and right, right, that we'd point people to Christ for salvation, and that we would be seeking to live according to our own new, true nature because of what Christ has done. Thank you so much for your grace in our lives, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.